Well, hey, good morning, Highland Park. My name is Brian. It's good, good to be with you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, about 60 years ago in London, said this, I do not think it is a harsh judgment to say that the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is superficiality, not being authentic, saying one thing but doing something else. And Eric Mason, in a book I recently read, said, God has never had an attitude that did not have an action. I like that. Everything that God thinks is true to this inner core and being and becomes an action associated with that. So welcome to week four of our series on the Sermon on the Mount called Upside Down because it really challenges us to think in an upside down way. And I've got to tell you, today's text has been messing with me for a very long time. I have been wrestling and wrestling and wrestling with this text, and my prayer has been that God will do a work in you. Uh, Hopefully, he's already begun this with this text, if you've been studying and reading along this week. But I'm going to pray that that would continue in you and build up as, and as God works with us, this text becomes living in our lives. And so I just want to ask you to lean into this text this morning and let God uh, speak to you and work in you, and, and he will do that. Before we read from Matthew 5, you can be turning there, uh, I want to explain what Jesus begins to do here, because this begins a series of him saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, and so it begins this whole chapter of him uh, introducing each topic this way, and when he says, you have heard that it was said, he's not just talking about what Moses said in the Old Testament law. He's not comparing his words directly with Moses' words. He's actually comparing his words, Jesus' words, with the interpretation that the Pharisees and religious leaders gave of Moses' words. There's a difference there. He does some of both, but especially he's talking about, hey, you've heard that it was said. They did not hear Moses say anything, but they heard the religious leaders teach what Moses had said and oftentimes put their own spin on it restricting the command or enlarging the command, however it might best benefit them. And so uh, when you hear, you have heard that it was said, Jesus saying, hey, I know that you've heard the religious teachers say this about this text, but I'm going to tell you something that maybe you never saw coming. So that brings us to Matthew chapter 5. And by the way, I cut today's sermon down about 10 different times, and I've left off an entire paragraph at the end. We're going to pick that up next week because it goes with next week. So if you're one of those people who get worried about such things, don't be. We'll get there. Uh, but I wanted to get you out of here before midnight, and so there's just a lot to this text. Jesus says this beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, if you are angry with your brother or sister, you are subject to judgment. Again, if you say to your brother or sister, Raka, then you are answerable to the courts. And if you say, you fool, you are in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do so on the way with them so 
uh, uh, oop, I forgot that part. Do so on the way with them, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you might be thrown into prison, and I tell you, you won't get out until you have paid the last penny. There's a lot to this text. When Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, and he says, you shall not murder. Later he says, you shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, an eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And see, the Pharisees had taken these commands and they had twisted them to their own benefit. That's what the people with power sometimes can do, right? Because if you're subject to judgment, who makes the judge? Who makes the call? If you've killed somebody, well, the judge does. And who do you think gets away with it more than anybody else? The Pharisees, the people in power, right? We still see that today. If you have tons of money and tons of influence, are you more or less likely to go to prison anywhere on the earth? No, you're less likely, right? It's just kind of the way that people with power tend to get their way a little bit. And the Pharisees had certainly constructed this system that had become unfair. And beyond that, Jesus is saying, listen, you have heard that if you murder someone, you're subject to judgment. So the Pharisees were teaching, here's why you should not kill. You should not kill because you'll have to go to court. Was that God's hope for the command? That we would not kill each other so that we don't get caught? Or was God's idea behind the command, love each other, care for one another? Of course I don't want you going around murdering each other. Because I want you to be a loving society, a good, healthy community. And so Jesus, as he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is trying to get to the heart. If you hear me say one thing today, it's this. God cares about your heart. He cares about your heart. And the text goes on and Jesus says, if, if you say the word raka, and we're like, well, what's that word? Well, it meant worthless person. So you could kind of translate that with a whole bunch of English terms that we use for people that we think are worthless. And then he says, or if you call someone fool, so you dehumanize them or label them or belittle them or mock them. Now, the Bible uses the word fool sometimes to describe some people, but Jesus is saying, you don't go around calling people names. You don't, you don't get to mock people. That's not for you to do. So... Is it possible, here's the age-old question, to hate the sin but love the sinner? I actually don't even think it's that complicated to think about because some of you are teachers and you have poured hours and hours and hours into a student and you have kept that student after class to do some free tutoring to help him or her bring their grades up a little bit and you've invested and invested and invested and you've come to where you love this student but at some point, that student cheated, and you were so angry that they cheated, but you still love the student. It's not even that hard to think about. For any parent, you love your kid, you hate it when they lie to you, right? And that's kind of what Jesus is getting after here, but even a little more so. You see, this text keeps twisting on my mind because I used to think a bunch of things. I used to think that God was okay with it when I was angry at bad people. I used to think that since God shows his anger at people in the Bible, that I have the right to show my anger to people in the Bible or wherever I might be. I, I used to think that if I was on the right side of an argument, my anger was excused. 
And I hear Christians talking about righteous anger. So I thought, well, I get to have righteous anger with other people too. And I've thought those things and I've heard those things. And here's what all has happened. You see, my justifications for anger are a giant tower and the Sermon on the Mount is a giant wrecking ball. It brings all of my justifications crumbling down. Now, we're going to cover a few of the nuances, but it's not fair to expect Jesus to say in this one paragraph and cover every single nuance in all of Scripture, okay? We're going to cover a few of those nuances about anger later on. But can we just put those to the side for a moment and just let the Sermon on the Mount be a wrecking ball to your justifications for anger, and then maybe we'll rebuild a little bit later? about what the Bible may and may not allow. Because when I hear about, like, well, I, I, am, I get to be angry because I am so holy and because I'm right on this and they're wrong on this, and so I get to be angry with this person who has done that. And I kept looking in the Bible where that was okay. And that is a long, fruitless search. Because here's what I found. Proverbs 29, mockers stir up a city, but the wise turn away anger. Ephesians 4, in your anger do not sin. Do not even let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Colossians 3, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. 1 Timothy 2, therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. James 1.20, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Catch this phrase. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Whoa. Yeah, but my anger does good stuff. That's not what... That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. 1 Corinthians 13, love is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Whew. There's a lot to that. And so there's a few applications that we can make. These are in your sermon page if you want to follow along. I wrote them out for you. There's a lot to digest here. So let's begin with this. Number one, don't provoke people to anger. Because Romans 12 says, make every effort as far as it depends on you to live in peace with others. Every effort. Now, that doesn't mean that every person is going to be at peace with you. You can't control whether they're going to be at peace with you or not. But you can help it. You can do all that you can. Because statements like, well, I'm just going to put it, out, put it out there and you do with it whatever you want. And I may offend some people, but I'm going to say this. And I don't care what anybody thinks about it, but I'm going to say this. You see, that is out of line with the Bible's teaching because the Bible says your attitude has to be you make every effort for peace. Oh, they, they may still not be at peace with you, but you do every single stinking thing you can do to be at peace with people. Still with truth. Still with God's holiness. You still proclaim God what God wants you to proclaim, but you do it trying to make every effort at peace. And too often I see Christians saying, to heck with peace, I'm just going to say it like it is. And that's sin. That's what the Bible talks about as sin. So don't provoke people to anger. There's no place for that for the Christian. Number two, 
be slow to anger. That's kind of on the flip side of not provoking someone to anger. If someone is provoking you, the text says, be slow to anger. Ecclesiastes 7 says, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. How quickly can your anger be aroused? Are, are you walking around like a grenade in which the pin has already been pulled, and if somebody rubs you the wrong way, you're going to blow up on them? Have you ever seen somebody you know, at the grocery store, and they have to wait in line for like an extra second, and they go bananas, and you're like, what happened? Probably didn't happen at the grocery store. Probably happened somewhere before that, right? And before that, and before that, because that's what happens when anger festers in us. And when we talk about this topic, the first thing that people often say is, well, I should, I, I should be angry because Jesus went in the temple and was angry and he turned over some tables and drove the animals out. And I want to just say, hold the phone for a moment, okay? Here's why. First of all, are you Jesus? Okay, really. I used to think because Jesus went in the temple and did some angry stuff, that gave me license to do whatever angry stuff I wanted to do. And I need to just step back in humility and think, my heart might not be quite as pure as Jesus' heart. So I need to be highly suspicious of my anger. And I think it's possible you might have some temple moments that are justified in your life where you make a little bit of a scene. But I also think that sometimes we excuse way too many of those. And so I think we need to be suspicious of our anger, our feelings of anger, and think, do I really need to hang on to that? Do I need to blow a gasket here? Am I really angry about the things which anger God, or is this a little temper tantrum, or do I want to get my way, or do I want to win somehow? I think we need to ask those questions. In the temple, the, the religious leaders had given a just kind of fair game to especially the Gentile court in the temple area where it was just overrun with animals and selling stuff and cheating people. And instead of it being a worshipful place of prayer, it had turned into this just like chaotic, dysfunctional mess that had prejudice on the underbelly of it all. And Jesus gets ticked off when people make it hard for people to come to him. That's one of the things that really angers Jesus. And so he does this. We, when we read in the text... We don't read about any broken bones or cracked skulls. He did turn over some tables. He had a whip. He drove the animals out. He made a scene for sure. But it wasn't the same as him going around and like punching people in the face. That's not the picture we see of Jesus here. But Jesus ultimately, why did he have this display? Was it because he wanted to get back at someone? Or was it because he wanted to speak up for the people that needed a voice. He wanted to, to speak up for uh, God the Father who deserved to be worshipped and reverenced there and then loved there and without all of the chaos going on and where there could be a place of prayer. Why did he speak up? Were his motives pure and good? Yeah. Are my motives always pure and good? Ugh. No. Ephesians 4 gives us a filter for our words. <clears throat> it says... Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So when you speak up, it has to be with the motive of restoring, reconciliation, lifting someone up. There's got to be grace 
in there. Is your anger restorative or is it destructive? There's probably a few times where you need to have a temple moment. I'm just saying there may not be as many times as you think. And make sure it's about restorative love and God's mission. James 4 says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? It's this. Your passions are at war within you. And so James is saying, quit blaming all the exterior things on your, on your fits of anger. Instead, look at your heart first. And so I think instead of first looking and blaming the bad driver or the lazy family member or the sassy kid or the overbearing boss or the hypocritical politician, we first need to just kind of look in our own hearts and think, is, is this my issue here? Am I just kind of bent out of shape and angry because I've got some stuff going on that I need to get rid of? Okay, so be suspicious of the root of your anger and realize that we're broken people and God is concerned about our hearts. He knows anger does us no favors. Not in the heart, not festering, not at other people. So, if you get angry, is that a sin? No, not necessarily. I mean, God created anger. You have that emotion because you were created in his image. So what do you do when you get anger, that's the next thing, number three. When anger comes, get rid of it. That's the biblical command. You get rid of it. God made you, it's an emotion. And by the way, your goal is to get rid of that anger. It doesn't mean you welcome a hurtful person back into your life to do whatever they want. It doesn't mean that you minimize sin. It doesn't mean that you go confront someone who needs confronted uh, with God's grace attached to that. It doesn't mean many of those things. Jesus isn't talking about all of those scenarios here. He's talking about your heart. It does mean your goal is to get rid of the anger with the person as fast as you possibly can. Because God knows that what happens to unchecked anger, it turns into something we call hate. And it becomes toxic and poisonous. But God... God says, unchecked anger is terrible, and I've called you to be changed by and motivated by love. And God says, I am God, and I have the right to hold on to an offense. And, and God says, I am perfect, and I'll be the judge, so you don't need to worry about it. You need to let go of that. So you and I have to let go of our right to be angry at other people. We like to hang on to that right. And that is a, feels like a big sacrifice to let go of my anger at someone else. Welcome to the Sermon on the Mount, where living is upside down from what you may think. And God doesn't want us to hate anybody because of two words, imago Dei, image of God that we believe God created everyone in his image. And if you are a human being, you were created in the image of God. Exhibit A, look at Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, <clears throat> second generation of humans. And there they are. And Cain has this anger boiling up in him, and God sees it. 
and God's nervous about it. And God says, Cain, be careful. And the exact words he says are, sin is crouching at your door. So be careful with that anger I see in you. And Cain doesn't listen to God. And he goes to his brother Abel. He says, hey, can you come help me out in the field for a minute? And, Cain, and Abel goes out there with him, and Cain murders his own brother. He rejects the notion that Abel was made in God's own image. He has no value for human life in that moment. You see, anger may not cause you to murder someone, but God says, I'm looking at your heart. I'm seeing the sin in your heart. I know it's going to come out in a nasty way somehow. It may not be with murdering your brother, but it may be with yelling at your co-employee. It may be with mistreating someone at your school. It's going to come out somehow. It's unchecked anger where we dismiss the image of God. And anger will do that in us. Did you know that research tells us the more extreme our anger, the more confident we are that we are right about the issue? Isn't that frightening for our entire planet? Don't we see it? You don't, don't, haven't you just maybe observed every once in a while and kind of stepped back and seen people that are really angry and fighting about an issue, and the more angry they get about it, the more stupid they get about it? You're like, well, you're not even trying to figure out the issue anymore. But when you become angry, you become locked in. When you say it out loud, then you have to defend your original position of why you were angry in the first place. And so you stay locked in. And we look at our entire country, and I'm seeing a lot of that. God knew that anger would do not only destructive things to the people around us, he knew it would do destructive stuff to you. He cares for you. You see, when we hang on to anger, it threatens the unity of the church, the witness of the church, the effectiveness of the church. But when we hang on to anger with unbelievers, it puts a barrier between them and Jesus. Man, that weighs heavily on me with the church. I, I, I know that there's times where we need to be angry and we ought to be angry about the mistreatment of somebody or about an injustice. But we also, in the moment of that anger, we can't sin. And if ever there was a sin... It was making it difficult for an unbeliever to come to Jesus. So we have to figure out, how in my anger do I not sin? How do I not mistreat someone so it makes it hard for them to come to Jesus? How can I speak up for truth and for what is right and for the person being mistreated while not driving a wedge farther between someone who's an unbeliever and Jesus? Because we know that when someone comes to Jesus, Jesus takes care of the heart stuff. And then a whole lot of other stuff falls into place. I, I've been just trying to figure out, so what do we do when we feel anger towards something, especially towards something that God gets angry about and God might expect us to be angry about as well? And I just kind of have been picturing walking and feeling like, ooh, I get really angry, and then God saying, okay, hard pivot towards love. I get angry, and as quick as I can, hard pivot towards love. I get angry about something as quick as I can, hard pivot, go the other way towards love. And here's how that's worked out practically in one way in my life, and there's some other ways that wouldn't be as good of examples because I'm still struggling there. Uh, <clears throat> I've been on the board of trustees for Black Box International uh, since 2010. Highland Park supports Black Box, which exists to help boys who have been rescued out of sex trafficking. 
And in 2010, when I first became aware of the issue, I was so angry. And I, I remember being in Honduras and hearing stories of boys who had been trafficked and the trauma that they had suffered and the traffickers, the evil that was involved in that and the corruption and the political payouts and all of the stuff that was happening. I remember I actually had a dream of killing traffickers. I still remember the dream. And at some point in that process of learning about trafficking, somewhere, thankfully, God got a hold of my heart to help me pivot away from all of the anger and pivot towards love to help restoring these boys and these communities. And I've thought, what would have happened to Black Box if our organization was completely built and fueled by anger? Would we be serving boys very well? Absolutely not. I actually had a meeting with an organization many years ago, and they had tons of funding, and they had a whole bunch of military-type people recruited, and they had this whole big plan to break into brothels and beat up bad guys and rescue trafficked children. And they, they wanted Black Box to partner with them uh, uh, financially, is what they were asking for. But they got through the whole spiel, and at the end of the, their spiel, I just kind of said, so what will you do with the children once you rescue them? They had no answer, none. They had not thought it through. I mean, I, I can't tell you a whole lot about that organization, but at that point, it felt a little bit like an organization that was built off of anger and not a whole lot of thoughtful love because I'll tell you what happens to children who get freed but not rescued. There's a difference. They get entrapped again very, very quickly. They're actually not rescued at all. They're just sent to another location to be trafficked or abused. And so I, I was thinking about all of that and thinking that in my life, when I feel anger, whether it be wrong anger and selfish anger or whether it be anger that God's like, yeah, of course you should be angry about that issue. Still in my life, I'll feel that anger and as I do, I still need to hard pivot away and think, okay, God, but I want to act in love here. I, I, I hate trafficking, and I will always hate trafficking. I hate what it does to children. I hate what it does to the heart of the trafficker. I hate everything about it. And I'm always going to feel this anger. But at the same time, Jesus calls me to live in love. And so is it wrong that I feel anger towards trafficking? No. Can I live my life with a hatred towards traffickers? Nope. It's not what the Bible lets me do. The Bible says we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. Now, do I want those traffickers thrown in prison? Absolutely, I do. We work towards that end. But does that mean that I don't love them? No, I still love them and I pray that their souls would change, that they would find, they would find Jesus and they could change a whole industry. So we have to keep trying to pivot away from this anger that is not productive towards a love that can be productive. So does that mean that we can be angry at some stuff? Yeah. I think we have to be real careful with that, to not act out of just I'm angry at stuff, so I'm going to do things, but I'm angry at stuff, and that actually drives me to love what is right and what is good. And there's never a place to be angry at another person. There's just not. You can't find it in the Bible. 
you, you, can, you can be angry at them for a day, okay? That's it, according to the Bible. Now, I don't think that Jesus is overly concerned about what time the sun sets on you, which time zone you're in or whatever. But the general idea is this. You reconcile with the person with whom you're angry as fast as humanly possible. You know, you are kind to them. You, you get on their schedule, your agenda. You don't march up to them, you know, when they're standing in the bank line and start going into this big spiel about trying to, you know, that's not the right place. It's not the right timing. It's not the right tone. You have to think your motives have to be right. It can't be about just getting something off your chest. God doesn't say, yeah, just go get stuff off your chest. Just talk to other people about it. Spew your hatred and anger. No, God says you go to that person, you maybe bring other people in with you if you need to, but you work towards reconciliation because I want your heart. I care about your heart. The text gives these two examples. The first is if you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar. You know, that actually happened at Highland Park years ago. Um, where, and it's probably happened more than I know, where we had a couple of people before communion time that pulled each other aside and they asked forgiveness, and they hugged it out. That was pretty awesome. That was, that was living out this text in a very real way. And I, I've known of other stories of people saying, hey, can, we need to get together, and a practical application of this text may mean that you need to get with somebody today, tomorrow, as soon as you can get your two schedules together, and you get with them, and maybe you need to get some advice. Maybe it feels like it's going to kind of blow up, so you need somebody to be with you. But you come with them, and you, and you work through stuff. And, man, that is hard. I hate doing that. I hate going to someone and say, hey, I need to tell you I blew it. Gosh, I hate doing that. But you know when I walk away how much better I feel? It's like the weight of the world comes off your shoulders. You know why that happens? Because God made us. And he knows if we go around with hatred and anger it's terrible for us. And yet when we follow his law, oh man, it feels so good. He made us that way. So Brant Hansen wrote this book I want to recommend called Unoffendable. If this, this topic resonates with you, I want to go buy the book. I, I wrote it down in your sermon page so you can find it. But he covers all of the nuances, you know, all of the stuff that I mentioned earlier. But here's the basic gist of what he says. He makes the case that the only time it is okay to stay offended at another person is never. You never have the right to stay offended at another human being, and here's why. You're not God. You're not perfect. Get over it. I mean, he covers all the nuances and stuff. He talks about the struggles that we'll have and how that anger, we can forgive it, and then it resurfaces again, and we forgive it again, and it resurfaces, and we're human, and we struggle, and it's difficult, but his premise is right on and right out of Scripture. You can't argue with it. We don't have the right to hold offenses and to keep them. We have to give that up. That's part of living and letting Jesus work in our, work in our hearts. And so there's this urgency to reconciliation. If you're going to court, it's urgent. If somebody's about to sue your pants off, it feels pretty urgent. And Jesus says, even if they're your adversary, give, give it your best shot. Try to work it out with them. Try, try to come to peace with them. Do whatever you can. See, we have a big problem. And the biggest problem is not murder. It's not adultery. It's anger. 
It's heart issues. Next week, lust. It's, it's because God looks and he sees what anger does. He says, I see the heartache of broken relationships. I see the torment in the heart of a child abused or abandoned or ignored by a parent because of anger. I see the destruction caused to whole groups of people because of anger. I see the downfall of civilizations due to anger. I see real lives, real people left in shambles because of unchecked anger. So do what it takes, and you do it fast. Eternities are on the line. Your life is on the line. Your church is on the line. Take care of it. And I think God would say to us today, quit telling me that it's no big deal. It's a big deal because your heart is a big deal to me. And I care about your heart. And if there's one thing out of whack with your heart, I care about it deeply. In fact, God cared about it so much, he watched son Jesus be killed on a cross. That's the big deal your anger is and my anger is. And Jesus wasn't just killed for the big, ugly sins that we look at. He was killed for the cause of them. The anger underneath, the sin beneath the sin, as Tim Keller says. For the anger and the lust and the greed. God cares about your heart. And when I say that, he doesn't just care about how your heart is. He actually cares about you. And he loves you. When he looks at you, he's not disgusted. The parable of the sheep and the one who wanders off The shepherd goes and looks for the sheep, and there's a good chance that sheep is going to be muddy and dirty and a mess and hungry and thirsty. And and God goes and he looks, not with disgust, but with love, saying, come back to me. I care about you. I care about your heart. When you look at, like, bullying in schools, you know, the bully has kind of a stereotype, right? It's not always correct, but the stereotype is sometimes the bully is the person who doesn't know he or she is ever loved in the first place. And because they don't think they're loved, they take that out on other people, and they try to control other people. And if you feel that you have anger in your heart, what's the root cause of that? I want to take a jab at that. Maybe it's because you don't know how much you're loved. Maybe it's because God loves you way more than you are giving him credit for. God loves you. He loves your heart. He looks at you with joy. And he says, I, I want to take your heart and cleanse it and make it whole and pure. And I want the church to be whole and together. And I want the unchurched and the lost world to be attracted to the love they see, the upside down living of my people. God cares about your heart. This morning, if you would like some people to pray for your heart, We welcome you to come down just to the front row right up here. There'll be some people here waiting for you that would love to pray with you and talk with you and study with you. Maybe you want to just check on your your communication card that you want to study and pray or talk with somebody this week. You can do that on, on that little connect card you've got in your bulletin or in the seat back. We'd love to get with you, talk with you, pray with you, whether it be during this uh, next couple songs or whether it be later on. Oh, we, we would welcome that. So if you would, would you stand? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your love that drives out hate, that drives out anger, that overcame sin. We want to experience that in its fullness. 
thank you that you're so loving that you won't even leave us alone on this one and that you dig deep into our hearts so that our hearts can find you. In Jesus' name.